So I started to really gain a lot more knowledge. And towards the end of my quality engineering journey, it was more centered around like, how can we make the tests as atomic and autonomous as possible by ensuring we're not relying on things like the data fixtures for tests, ensuring that we're creating data for each and every test. And what did that really mean? Some of it was you know, making API requests. Some of it was making um, calls straight to stored procedures in the database in order to create a set of users with data, all sorts of things like that. Hey, Josh, welcome to the test automation experience. It's such a pleasure to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nikolai. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure to have you. I like to start off these episodes with a little bit of a challenge. And for you, I was wondering if you can code us something in 60 seconds. Yeah, I can definitely do that. I can make just a simple Hello World Python app and Dockerize it for you. Let's give that a shot. Ready and go. All right. Let's do real quick. Let's go. And let's do a print. Hello. World. All right. And let's make a Docker file. I go with just that alone. It's basically just going to copy this app.py. And I'm just going to run a Python command to basically run our hello world. And I'm going to go ahead and. And if I run it, we should have. Oh, when did I break? something wrong my syntax ah yes there was try that again all right hello world amazing that was so cool i don't think i've ever seen anything dockerized so fast that was awesome josh yeah we'll follow up on this and explore this a little bit further another question i have for you is what's the biggest mistake people make in devsecops Let's see, I think it would revolve around the strategy mainly because, I mean, what you're basically doing in a DevSecOps role is you're trying to bridge the gap between the security team, which is usually to the right, and the dev teams to the left. So around the strategy, it's more you have to meet the team where they are and not be prescriptive with going immediately to the left. If the security team isn't entirely aware of you know, SCA or SAST or DAST scanning in the first place, you really have to educate the security team, get them up to speed on it first, get a baseline even of where your vulnerabilities and your apps are right now. And then after that, then you can start to actually shift it left and introduce it more to the dev teams and really get it baked into the agile workflow in general. 
it takes time. I feel like in some teams, whenever they start to look into this, they might try to go too fast. Great. And then the last question for you, your top three tools for effective quality engineering. Top three tools. So Selenium, for sure. That was my uh, bread and butter back in the day whenever I was quality engineer. Besides that, Faker was a really good one for generating test data automatically. And then also, I don't, wouldn't really call it too much of a tool, a test repository, at least, or like test management solution. So that way you at least have an idea of the tests that are there. Some people prefer to have them just in code even with BDD or something like that that actually describes it in English. Other people prefer in like Jira, X-Ray or test rail, things of that nature. Those are really the top three, I'd say. Thanks so much for sharing that. I know you have a interesting journey. You came from QE and now you're doing a lot of DevOps. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found that journey and some lessons you've learned along the way. My background was initially more of like a sysadmin and I got a little bit into like PowerShell and things like that. And I was working more in the realm of kind of like a computer repair shop and I was basically looking for ways to automate, speed up operating system deployments and updates, things like that. So I landed on you know a couple of things there. And then I decided to make a change. I found an opportunity at a Syntech job. And from there, I thought it was going to be more sysadmin because that's what my path was. But I also started to really enjoy the quality assurance space just in general. I got exposed to it because you know it was a smaller FinTech company. And we only had maybe about 50 total employees for the entire company. And everyone in IT wore a lot of hats because it was a small company, right? So I did everything from CSR calls all the way to manual QA testing and getting into the agile space a little bit at the time. You know, they were small, so they weren't very mature in a lot of those areas. But it allowed me to really see, first off, I have a niche that I'm starting to enjoy, quality assurance and testing. I was doing it manually for a long time, for maybe a year or two. I started to branch out. I had a good mentor. He actually wanted me to look more into automation. He didn't know exactly how to do it himself, but it seems like it's going to be a good path forward. I actually started to stumble upon things like Catalan, Selenium, Ranorex, some of these tools. And I was like, I don't know which one to really go for right away. So we landed on like Ranorex and started playing around with that a little bit and I came to find out, oh, it's going to take a little more effort than just like point and click and record things like that. And then after that, we landed on Selenium and that's where really my engineering journey officially started. I was still like reviewing code a little bit before then, because I was also in a role of more of like a release manager, reviewing code, ensuring that the package actually matched what should be getting deployed, things like that. So uh, whenever I got into Selenium, I really started to dive deeper, you know, creating a custom framework on a wrapper around Selenium in order to actually get opinionated value out of it for the company that I work for. I went pretty far in that area. We did everything from just boilerplate code to start with, to creating the custom framework. And then even throughout the journey, learning more about, especially from Sauce Labs and other online areas of focus to get educated, like Test Automation University what like atomic testing really meant, how to get there, how to make it more autonomous at the same time, things like that. So I started to really gain a lot more knowledge. And towards the end of my quality engineering journey, it was more centered around 
like how can we make the tests as atomic and autonomous as possible by ensuring we're not relying on things like the data fixtures for tests, ensuring that we're creating data for each and every test. And what did that really mean? Some of it was you know, making API requests. Some of it was making um, calls straight to stored procedures in the database in order to create a set of users with data, all sorts of things like that. So we really went from end-to-end -end testing and we really started breaking down everything. Instead of it being so much end-to-end, -end, we got a lot more into the business knowledge that was in place there. And we were able to really break down, say, you know, for some prereqs for tests, you know, we're going to create a user, we're going to attach an invoice, we're going to also maybe schedule a payment already if the test only involved looking to see if a scheduled payment you could view in the customer profile, things like that. But then, you know, I also started to get a little bit more aware of the SDLC as a whole. So instead of it just being tunnel visioned only in the quality part, I really started to understand more about the SDLC. And by that, I mean, as we were going through this whole journey of test automation with Selenium and understanding more about engineering practices, everything from Git branching strategies all the way through to the DevOps pipelines in order to first off build the app, deploy the app to a sub prod environment, run the automated tests, have quality gates in place to make sure that it couldn't proceed. And if there were any failures, also notifying the quality engineering team, mainly my team at the time, that there were any issues, any failures, then getting those addressed or signing off to say, oh yeah, maybe there's some flaky tests or maybe we're just going to accept the risk for this release, things like that. Wow, that sounds like a very cool journey, similar to me, even though I didn't end up on the same end as you. But one thing that you talked about that I think many people experience and many companies start is with automated testing and quality assurance, they start at the black box end-to-end -end functional testing level. And then they realize that's not good enough. They want to go faster. They want to be more efficient. They want to do CICD. And so there are many areas and journeys to go on to get there. And it sounds like you went on a similar journey. And one of those areas, which I talk to so many customers about all the time, is creating the atomic tests. And you've touched on a number of ways you all did that. Take us through that journey of starting out with those functional browser tests. And then how did you all like break things up to be more atomic and reliable and get to the place, a more mature CICD quality place? So the journey started, like you said, black box testing end to end. Even our Selenium test framework was in the same repo. It wasn't like in a separate repo. So where we started first was Selenium Framework. It was .NET. So we took it out and we made it its own repo. We basically had that first off be the first thing that we were going to put in our CI/CD pipeline in order to have a framework that would actually get built and deployed separately. So that way, in our artifact management, we would be able to have multiple other repos. They call it polyrepo. Instead of it being the monorepo, we're changing it to a polyrepo. That's one of the first things that we decided to institute, where instead of that living in its own repo, the framework's been separated. And then we started breaking down, okay, there's this many areas within kind of our website, right? 
Take for instance, if you have customers versus clients versus maybe a, a quick payment or things like that, there were like different areas. What kind of, this is for the fintech company? Yeah, it was B2B and B2C in a way. And B2C. Okay, cool. So maybe bringing in banks and then customers for managing their money and so on. It was more like uh, government utility billing related. So working with the actual billers themselves, they were really like the B2B part. And then the B2C was like the customers of those utility billing. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So there's like different areas of focus there. And then also like based on whether or not you're like logging into the portal or if you're going to just make a guest payment, things like that. So we started to identify that we could actually separate out really our tests into different repos based on the structure of even like the app. So we decided to do that. And then within those test repos, we would pull down the framework within each of those. So we would import our third party, it'd be our first party in this case, but our external library, we'd be able to pull that down. And we baselined it at like a major version. So we had semantic versioning in place with Git version for our framework. And then our poly repos all just baselined with the latest of major version one. So that way we knew that we weren't going to make any breaking changes in our framework unless we updated the major version. Then all of a sudden we had the ability for multiple repos to pull down our framework. And then after that, whenever we really started ironing out, okay, we have this one mono repo with all of our tests. We started going down the journey of taking each one of those tests and ironing out the details that we needed. So a lot of them required creating a customer. A lot of them might have required creating a biller, attaching an invoice to the customer, attaching a payment to the customer. So we started small. We said, okay, how can we just bypass the login screen? That's one of the first things we did. And we saved like 10 seconds from our t- each and every test that logged in. How did you all do that? Did you already have APIs available to be able to do that? And then how did you even know how to do that in code? So the main thing, they ha- did have an API that existed already that allowed us to do that. And that was actually built into their ecosystem because of an integration with their clients, their billers. So that way from the biller portal or from like the biller's site, they could immediately jump into their payment portal instead of having to log in. So we piggybacked off of that because we could then immediately also have all of these different redirect modes, they called it, where we would pass in a parameter and then we'd immediately land on a page that we needed to be on. So that's helpful also, <laughs> instead of having to log in, navigate to the page and then make a payment, we could just immediately start a test and already be logged in and on the payment page for us. And in order to actually do that in code, we had some experience in the past with like API testing in general. So instead of it being a separate repo just for API testing, we started to intermingle them, right? We said, okay, let's take our API tests that we've already created. And the same things we could actually just inject as some prerequisites for our tests and even our post steps. That's beautiful. Yeah, the reason why I was mentioning that was because I think a login is a very logical first place to start because it's probably the operation we do most of in our UI-based applications. And if we have a lot of tests, we'll be doing it a lot. Some people, and actually myself, when I was learning how to make my tests more efficient and more atomic as well, may not even realize like, okay, I can bypass the login in a number of different ways, and we might not even know where to start. And so 
I remember one application we worked on, I had to talk to the engineers, to the developers to introduce an API authentication mechanism so that we could bypass the login. But I think typically there already exists an API authentication mechanism. We just don't know about it. And so then maybe is it then just a conversation with the developers to understand how it works and then converting that to be a part of your tests? Yeah, we already had gone through some of that with some of our API tests, but of course, where when needed, we had to pull in devs to understand more about the APIs. And some organizations you might run across, well, they have really good internal documentation for their APIs too. That makes sense. And you, and then you also mentioned you ran uh, stored procedures as well. Why did you make that decision? It's more a business decision that was made before, where not everything was exposed to APIs. So we had to use stored procedures because APIs didn't exist. And also they had a lot of other work on their plate and we couldn't just ask them, hey, make this API for me. Was it establishing a database connection inside of your tests and then running the procedures? And then based on that, you would put the application in the right state so that then you can interact with it in whatever means you wanted? Exactly. It's very similar to like an API request, just DB connection. And then stored procedures make it simple because all you have to do is pass it parameters also, just like an API. I haven't heard that talked a lot about, but it's definitely a really wonderful strategy. I've utilized it myself for test data creation, especially if you don't have an API available and need a bunch of users with different permissions and states running some database commands to generate those users and then using them for your automation. Yeah, and we used Faker to generate a lot of the random data for us. That's awesome. Josh, we got into a really wonderful conversation, but that's not really why you're here. You're here, you're now a DevSecOps expert, and we want to learn more stuff from you about that. We talked a little bit about the application that you just coded for us in 60 seconds, and then you also showing us how to inject some vulnerabilities in there and testing for some vulnerabilities. Can you show us that and walk us through it? Okay. I think it might make sense to kind of go over really like CICD and just SDLC in general first before just like jumping in to like injecting the vulnerabilities. So I didn't create this. I forget where I got it from. I think it was from like Atlassian's like CICD process or something like that. They do a pretty good job of documenting what a typical CICD process looks like. So even as like a quality engineer, should be familiar with pretty much everything here on the left side. You know, of course, you're going to branch out, make a feature branch, you're going to make a PR, it's going to get peer reviewed. There's going to be some bug checks, passing builds, but you also see security analysis here and also really at like a QA phase that's a little further to the right. So there's a couple of different reasons why these can be split up, but I wanted to definitely make sure we discuss this because on this show, label test automation experience, but in order to bring some awareness to security analysis and how to really automate this as well. I think we need to start with like, first off, what it looks like in the process, like where it belongs. Does it belong right before you go to production? Can you shift it left? All of that is, is definitely doable. So whenever we talk about security analysis here at the QA stage to the right, this is typically, if you're pushing it to the right here, it's either going to be for a security team that's like isolated completely from an agile team where they're just running some scans. They're not even involved really in, in much of the dev process yet. But as you 
actually have a security team more involved here, what ends up happening is you get at least a baseline. And by a baseline, I mean, there's about three different types of security scans that typically are ran. One is what's called SAST. It's uh, static application security testing. And that actually is in direct relation to the code that you have written. So it's not your third-party libraries. It's not what the browser or what a third-party user is going to see whenever they go to your site in a browser. It is actually analyzing your code that you've written for any weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Then there's also SCA. So it's SCA, that's Software Composition Analysis. And it's, this one's a pretty easy one to remember because you know your software is composed of more than just your code. Composition also includes your third-party libraries. Take, for instance, Selenium. That's a third-party library. Take, for instance, Flask, or we talked about Faker earlier. Any of these libraries that exist, you can also run software composition analysis scans against databases to determine if the version that you're running has vulnerabilities also. And then there's one last one. It's dynamic application security testing. And that one is more browser-facing. This is going to be more like UI-based in a way. You have a crawler that goes on the web and it actually scans all of the code that's at least exposed to the browser to see if there's any vulnerabilities that can be injected. As an example, like SQL injections and a text box, things like that. So you don't necessarily have to make a lot of Selenium tests to test for SQL injections. You could actually rely on other tools that exist to do the same job. So those are at least like the three types of scans that uh, we're going to go over. That's amazing. Quick question on those, Josh. If you just had an API without a front end, would you only do SAST and SCA? Correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so, yeah, the DAST is from the front end acting as a user and trying to maliciously get into the application. Yep. A lot of times they'll even require like a Selenium IDE script or something like that in order to actually authenticate into like the profile, right? To gain access to other directories that you won't have access to without authentication. Beautiful. Thanks for explaining that. Okay. So those are at least like the different scans that typically exist in DevSecOps. Another quick question, Josh, on that. Here it's in the QA stage. So are we saying that QAs should be executing these types of tests or should they be another team? What do you think? That depends on multiple things. I think if the business is wanting the QAs to be the ones to do it, sure. The security team and CISOs, they really have a lot more power in order to actually influence change within the organization to ensure that vulnerabilities like this are getting addressed. So if it's like a high risk one, like you've heard about log4j vulnerabilities and other things that have come up, I'm sure like Okta recently had a big vulnerability. So in this modern world, we have all of these vulnerabilities and weaknesses in our code. It's extremely important that everyone really be aware of it. And I'd say if in your organization, if you don't know about this, if you've never heard of it, you might want to at least double check with the security team, see if they're doing anything like this. If they're not, then maybe you can be the one to also influence change within your organization and be the one to help spearhead it because it is really important. There's a lot of vulnerabilities that exist and there's a lot of databases that exist that have really listed out all of the vulnerabilities for us, at least the ones that are known 
they're common, right? That's why it's called CVE, CWE. And with that, as long as we actually have a good process in place to run these scans, get it to the right folks, I think that's what matters most. I don't really care as much about who does it. I'm not really one to say, like, let's throw it over the wall. We can all collectively think about security together. That totally makes sense. Do you have some go-to tools that you like for these three types of security testing? There's a lot that exists. One big one that I do like is JFrog Artifactory. That's one of my highly recommended ones currently. There's a lot of benefits to an artifact management solution being the one to also do the scanning, where you can first off ensure that all of your artifacts are actually getting stored in one central repository, not going out to the public. So you can actually control all the versions that your devs are using. So that way, you know, it's not being used with like some old version that has vulnerabilities that are like maybe 15, 20 that are super critical that are going to leave your application vulnerable. So JFrog Artifactory is a big one. They also do a really good SCA testing. So for the software composition analysis, what they can do is they can actually analyze your code against the third-party libraries. And not only does it give you the vulnerabilities that exist, but it'll also tell you whether or not it's applicable. And by being applicable, it's more like your software. Is it calling the functions that are actually vulnerable? If it doesn't, then why waste time looking at it? So JFrog's a good one. Others that are maybe not so much shift left in a lot of ways, because maybe they're a little slower. They might not have as much acceleration when it comes to like speedy scans. If your application is really large, that can take a long time and it's hard to put a gate in place for some of these. But one that comes to mind is Veracode. Veracode, you can just take your application package and you can just upload and scan it. And it'll take, depending on your application, it can take hours, multiple hours to run. Within one scan, you can get all of your SAST and SCA immediately done. And they also have DAST as well. So with that, they just have a simple way that you can take a Selenium IDE script, pop it in, and then you're off and you can actually authenticate into the profiles. It'll crawl every page, give you any vulnerability that it finds. They also have a good way to have like a, an internal gateway, they call it. Since uh, Veracode's external, it's public facing. It can pretty much only access like a production environment, unless you have some other lower environments that are also exposed, then you could. But they also have internal gateways where you're able to actually spin up an internal gateway agent within your network. And then after you have that gateway spun up and attached to your Veracode instance, then your Veracode tenant has the ability to scan your subprod environments. Nice. It sounds similar to how at Sauce Labs, we have Sauce Connect because testing doesn't only happen in production. It happens in all the environments. And so Sauce Connect is an HTTP proxy that basically establishes a secure connection, HTTPS proxy that establishes a secure connection to the lower environment that allows the network traffic to flow through from your QA to Sauce Labs public cloud, for example. Is that the same thing? Sounds very similar. It's just in order for an external facing app to be able to reach in. So there's other ones that are like CLI based as well. You know, there's like Bandit and Safety that I'm going to show just so that way we can get like some quick scans without needing to use like a real tool. Bandit and Safety, Bandit's like a SAS one and Safety is a SCA one. Dast, I don't have the ability to showcase that without an actual tool. Mm, okay, let's see it. I'm very excited. 
Yeah. So as we actually look to actually shift it more left, this is what comes into play, right? Is actually getting it involved in the DevOps pipelines, ensuring that they're going to be scanned, putting up gates if you can, things like that. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So you do recommend a gating strategy based on security scans? Yeah, I mean, if it makes sense with the speed of the scan and the size of your application, if you play devil's advocate, you could say, yeah, it's going to take like hours and hours and I'm going to have a pipeline that's running for, it's just going to have an open connection that's there for eight hours for my scan to complete. That's a long time and it's not really quick feedback anyways. So some of those, if they're taking a lot longer because of maybe the size of your application or just how big it is, and maybe some of these can be something that's at least done as a gate before you release to production. Maybe it's not at the very beginning shift left all the way to the devs because of the slow feedback loop that you could have. But it all depends on the speed of the scan. If it takes a really long time, then I wouldn't recommend shifting it too far left. But if your scans are going fast, then it's great. There's other ways to shift it left instead of a gate as well. There's a lot of IDE tools. That'll just give you feedback immediately as you're coding. Let me uh, share. Let's go back and do we want to inject the vulnerabilities? See some yeah. scans run? Okay. Let's inject some vulnerabilities. <laughs> okay. So we have our Hello World Python app. It's Dockerized, right? It's running a simple like, Docker file here. So now let's say we have our app. All that we have to do, at least in Python, to run like Bandit and Safety, like we talked about, Inside the Docker file, we can just take and insert a pip install command. So we're going to install bandit and safety. Going to rebuild the Docker image. So not only rebuild it, I need to change my yam as well. So the command, we're going to now, instead of just running the app, what we're actually curious about is any vulnerabilities that are going to exist in our app. So let me make sure I save that. They build it. Okay. Now you're saying that we actually have some output, right? So within a CLI, we can tell immediately it didn't identify any issues so far. And we didn't inject any vulnerability yet, but we have a scan that's at least running and letting us know. It'll tell you the total lines of code that were scanned, because all that we have right now is two simple lines. And then it breaks down by you know severity and confidence. So confidence is like, you know, confident they are that it's actually like based on a severity that it is actually a legitimate vulnerability that you should really care about. Severity is more like it's actually being used that it's maybe more applicable. It doesn't tell you that it's more applicable, but you just have to, at least in the bandit context, you have to read between the lines. And I'll show you whenever we inject the vulnerability, what that really looks like. So I'm going to shift back over to the app.py here and let me make a little more room. So I'm just going to copy and paste this just for ease. So in this case, yeah, we're just doing a, a, a simple sub-process call. The sub-process call is actually insecure and can lead to command injection, okay? Well, what does that mean, a sub-process call? Is that is that a function? Yeah, so let's see. It runs a command, waits for it to complete, then returns a completed process instance. 
Okay. So just running some command. Yep, exactly. And that's in this case, all that we're doing is just we're just going to send it one plus one as a string. That's it. It's like uh, running a process in the background. Yeah, exactly. And with shell equals true as well, which is also insecure. Uh, okay, so let's get that saved. I think that should be all I have to do. Let me rebuild it again. And now, when we run it, now you'll actually see that we're getting a lot more output from our uh, Bandit application. So with this, it's, it'll give you the test results. It'll, say, it'll tell you first off, the CWE in question. You can follow this link and go right there. Tell you all about it. If you want some more information from Bandit about it, you can proceed there. Otherwise, it'll call out the exact line in question. And then down here, this is our other one. So it's first off, this is the function that we made that's vulnerable or has a weakness. But then there's also when we're actually calling this function. So we have first off up here, we've defined the function that we're actually going to call. And then we're calling it in our script down here. So within this process, after it's called, you'll see that it breaks it down separately. So you'll see that we have a low severity and a high severity. The low severity is like if the function exists. The high severity is that you're actually using it. And then the confidence is just high in general because it's definitely vulnerable to command injection. So this is for SAST, right? So you can immediately, at least with a, a CLI tool, you can start to identify if your application has any vulnerabilities. And it's just comparing it against, you know, the, the common uh, weakness enumeration and the common vulnerability in enumeration databases. That's awesome. This, I imagine, is something that either developers have to know about doing or it has to be pushed down from the top. The developers have to do this in their code as they develop software, right? That's the whole thing behind the DevSecOps. Right. Actually, like having a strategy in place for DevSecOps to shift it left. So they might not need to do it locally necessarily. There's multiple ways you can go about it. You can make it a pre-commit. So when they commit something, maybe you just run some CLI tools like this. Maybe in the pipeline, if you're using something like JFrog Artifactory or Veracode, at that point, the pipeline can immediately upload and scan and ensure that, you know, there's the vulnerabilities are at least like accepted or that they're getting rejected and they're going to go back to the dev. From there, it really depends on the maturity curve. Over time, you'd like to see the devs start to utilize the tools within their IDE. So that way they don't have to run these in the first place. They're just getting instant feedback as they're coding. Yeah, that's awesome. It seems almost a similar strategy to how organizations will build out automated testing. You start at a end user front end basis, right? You start writing automated tests. And after a little bit, you realize, okay, I wanna be more efficient. Let's move down some layers. Okay, I can be even more efficient. Hey, let's introduce developers into this and now all work together towards a common goal. And hopefully by that point, developers have already seen your automated tests running, getting the fast feedback has been valuable. And they're like, cool, I'm excited to get involved. And it seems like this security migration process is similar as well. You start at the top, showing value, 
and moving it little by little into the developer's hands. Sound right? Yeah. And each organization might take longer than others to move it down, of course, depending on where things are. Maybe product has a whole backlog that they need features out for, and then you have to prioritize it with the vulnerabilities that are there. But slowly but surely, you can definitely shift it left, just like your tests. Cool. Okay, so that's at least SAST, right? So we can also do a quick SCA one as well. Let's do it. All right. So with Python, of course, you're going to end up having, in a perfect world at least, requirements.txt. So in this requirements.txt, let's just put in a really old version of Flask. Okay. It's old. We have it hard-coded. You know, it's not going to just be like greater than 1.1.2. No, it is 1.1.2. And then we need to come back over to our Docker file, and make some changes. So in our Docker file, all that we need to change is we need to get the requirements copied over. So as the requirements.txt, we need to make sure that comes into our Docker image. And then our command is going to change. In this case, we're not using bandit. We're going to just use safety. And we're going to run it against the requirements.txt file. Why are we using safety now over bandit? Yeah, bandit's the SAS tool. And this one is the SCA tool. So in this case, we're actually going to be scanning a third-party library instead of our own software. So if we wanted to run both, would we just have two commands, one with bandit, one with safety? You're like foreshadowing. I have that in store for you too. You can do an entry point and in your, in your Docker file and just run like a, a bash script in order to execute both. Okay, cool. All right. So let's see. So we got that enabled. We got our old version of Flask. Nothing needs to change here. Let's rebuild it. And right. So the output's going to be a lot different because we're using a different CLI. So in this case, You'll see here, we've got some vulnerabilities found. So vulnerability found in Flask version 1.1.2. Now with every software composition analysis tool, it'll tell you the version, of course, that you have, but it'll also tell you that you need to at least be at another version that's going to solve this vulnerability. So just by updating to 2.2.5 or 2.3.2, it'll include a fix for the CVE. And all that we would have to do in order to fix this is let's say we take this 2.2.5 and pop that in. Of course, you'd want to make sure, since you're even changing a major version here, that you'd want to test it. Of course, business as usual, make sure things still work. But for this use case, if I just rebuild it now, it's needing to, I guess, grab it again, bandit and safety. Okay. We run it again. Now there's no known security vulnerabilities found. And the reason is because we updated to the version that they recommended. So you can do this in the CLI. I mean, there's some Python ones that make it simple. Putting it in a CLI, that will give you quick feedback for sure, at least in the pipeline. Once you actually move towards a tool, depending on the tool that you choose, could be a little bit slower. But to your question, you mentioned, how can we run both, right? SAST and SCA? So Let's say if we want to take this and run, let's maybe just change this back to 1.1.2, our vulnerable flask. 
Let's make an entry point dot sh. So in here, all that we have to do, we're going to do the same things, right? Except instead, we're just running bash scripts in order to execute it. And then we have to make a couple changes to our Docker file. So first thing we need to do is obviously get the entry point.sh that we create and our Docker image. Once it's there, we do need to ensure that the entry point is executable. And that's with this chmod plus x that'll actually make this script executable. And then instead of a command like this, to do it in Docker, it's entry point. And then we're going to call our entry point.sh. So just like that, instead of having single commands here or trying to uh, combine them within this line, you can actually separate it out to an entry point. And you can add any command that you need to run within this entry point.sh instead. So if I take this, I rebuild it. So sudo docker run demo again after it's been built. And now it puts out a lot of output, but you'll see we've combined now our good old bandit is being ran. This is the output from bandit for SAST and also safety for our SCA. Nice. And what are both of them saying? I saw there was some high. So it's still the same output here at this point. We didn't change the app.py. So whenever we ran these commands, we're still seeing at least the same vulnerability. So everything that we did in a single threaded way of running bandit in isolation and safety in isolation, they're now running together and still reporting the same vulnerabilities for us. So this one, just like before, still because of that subprocess call, us actually calling it, uh, we still get the same low, high, and couple highs for the confidence and safety at this point as vulnerabilities found because we did change this back to 1.1.2. That's awesome. And Josh, from a high-level perspective, I don't know if there's an ideal setup for security that exists. But what is like the ideal CI pipeline that you'd like, if you, I guess, could wave a magic wand and set something up at your organization that you would feel fantastic about, what would that look like? So the first thing, shifting all the way left, would be ensuring that whatever tool we've landed on, be it JFrog, Vercode, name the security tool, whatever it is, they have IDEs or IDE plugins those IDE plugins should be really used immediately, in my opinion. Those are going to give the developers the fastest feedback as quick as possible to ensure like as they're writing, they're not introducing any new vulnerabilities. That would be number one. Number two would be ensuring that within the subprod pipelines, depending on the tool that you choose, that you are at least running your SAST and SCA appropriately within the pipeline. Beyond that, I would love to see JFrog Artifactory get used as an artifact management system because there's a lot of benefits to ensuring that you're not grabbing and you're not allowing devs to grab any version that exists out in the public repositories. You're isolating all of the versions that you're allowing your devs to use 
within that artifact system instead. That would be really good in my mind. And then on top of that, Dast is a lot different. Dast takes a long time to run also, depending on your app. It is UI-based. Just schedule that at least if you have like a release cadence, maybe you release once a week, twice a week, maybe every two weeks, however often it is. Ensure that at least you're getting a DAST scan and before you're releasing to production. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. But you mentioned before releasing to production, right? So in your test environment, that makes sense. That's awesome, Josh. I thought it was amazing. So then maybe leave our audience with one piece of advice from your vast career and experience in different areas. One piece of advice the engineering world, we have to continuously learn. There's been times when I've struggled myself to overcome like a surmountable amount of knowledge that I have to be gaining in order to achieve some of the dreams that I have in place, especially as far as the IT industry here. There's a lot to learn, especially even on SDLC and the DevOps world. It's a a big change going from just like solely looking at test automation and looking at the entire SDLC as a whole. That's a big shift. If in your quality engineering, you're already doing some DevOps pipelines, of course, because your tests are running there. Hopefully your framework is running through it as, as well. Maybe you're following good semantic version practices and you've made the pipeline yourself. If you haven't, my best piece of advice really is to continue to learn don't stop. And if this is something that is piquing your interest, you can reach out to me. There's a lot of YouTube videos out there as well. A lot of really good DevOps practice practitioners on YouTube. If you need any resources, I'm here. Don't be afraid to continue to learn in this field because that's the way of the future here. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. What are your favorite resources? In the DevOps space, one of the big ones, Tech World with Nana is really good. She is one of the most prominent figures right now, at least that I've seen on YouTube around lots of things. If you want to get into other things like infrastructure as code, GitOps practices, any more advanced, like maybe you're interested in stuff like Kubernetes, auto-scaling infrastructure, just cloud infrastructure in general. She's a really good resource. That's like the biggest one that I would shout out. That's beautiful. Thank you. And Josh, where can people learn more about you or connect with you? LinkedIn is the best way. You can find me there. And yeah, I'm, I'm open for connections. If you need to reach out for anything, definitely. Thanks so much, Josh, for joining the Test Automation Experience. It's been so nice to chat with you. And I learned so much from you. And I'm sure that our audience will also learn a lot. Thank you, Nikolai. Appreciate your time. Hey, and thank you so much for tuning into the Test Automation Experience. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to give the show a thumbs up, subscribe down below. And if you have any questions about what you saw, any comments, comment below. I respond to every single comment. And thanks so much for your time and see you next time.